You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. And um, before we start, I guess a little mild gloating. Um, when we started the show years ago, um, we did a show on the Amazon tax. And r- right after we got off the air, one of our guests won an injunction on enjoining the application of the Amazon tax in Colorado. And then a couple of weeks later, we did a show on Arab Spring. And the very next weekend, um, Hosni Mubarak came, came down and resigned as um, president of Egypt. And so just two weeks ago, we did a show on Uber and all the various crises there. And Word out today that um, last week the, the CEO of Uber um, announced he was taking a leave of absence, and this today he is announcing his resignation. So um, hats off to our um, tag team of Dan Tynan and Brendan Christensen. Um, you guys are giant killers, and um, so uh, of course we all know that that there's a direct causative effect. Um, well, at least we'd like to think so. But any event, um, we have some other causes and effects to address today. We have with us our, our patent lawyer and resident, Joel Volsky, who's talking to us um, from his firm in Malibu. Joel, are you with us? Yes. Good morning, Bennett. It's honored to be here again. Thank you. And uh, how is life in beautiful Malibu this morning? Couldn't be better. Nice day, as always. And um, pretty warm day, actually. Um, so... Um, Joel is here because the Supreme Court has actually put on its intellectual property cap the past couple of weeks. And as it rallies, it churns out its decisions at the end of the term. And we've had two kind of significant decisions in the IP space. The first we're going to talk about is a patent ruling in the case um, 
involving venue in the TC Heartland LLC versus Kraft Foods Group Brands LLC, and it came out on May 27th. Joel, can you tell us just a little bit about that and why 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 we're talking about it today? Sure. Well, interestingly enough, in the last three or four weeks, the Supreme Court has issued three decisions that are restricting the places that you can sue a corporation. And all those cases are kind of a little bit on their own facts. But let's talk about the T.C. Heartland case v. Kraft. That was about where you can sue a corporation for patent infringement. Uh, it kind of goes back to there was an 1897 statute called the Patent Statute. Congress wrote that says, well, you can sue a corporation where it resides or where it has a regular and established place of business and has committed acts of infringement. So that's a little bit narrow. Where a corporation resides has been interpreted to mean where it has its headquarters. So either where it has its headquarters, or excuse me, where it's incorporated, or where it has at least an office and is doing regular business. Now, in 1948, Congress wrote a statute that seemed to be more permissive than that, but it was unclear which really controlled. Um, The 1948 statute said that you can sue a corporation pretty much anywhere uh, personal jurisdiction is proper, which, you know, for a corporation that sells products all over the country, that would be pretty much anywhere. So which one controls? Well, in 1990, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals said the more general statute controls. You can sue a corporation anywhere. And the Supreme Court said uh, a few days ago that the Federal Circuit for 27 years has been getting it wrong. You look at the text of the statutes, you look at what Congress intended, and they didn't intend that you could sue a corporation pretty much anywhere uh, it's sending products into the district. So now we're back to you can sue a corporation for patent infringement where it is incorporated or where it has a regular and established place of business and has committed acts of infringement. Now, why is that important? Well, uh, let's, let's talk about the, the, the patent trolls and the Eastern District of Texas. Um, the, there's a couple places in the One country. second, Joel. Let me put my cowboy hat on. Yes, sir. <laughs> Go right ahead, sir. All right. <laughs> there's kind of two places that have become very popular for patent litigation. One is the Eastern District of Virginia. And the other one is the Eastern District of Texas. Now, why those two places have become popular? Well, uh, they're both places where there's what we call a rocket docket, where things happen fast, which is to the benefit of a patent plaintiff, not a patent defendant. If you're a patent defendant, one way you can defend against the patent is by showing the patent to be invalid. And to do that, it requires a lot of looking into prior art and piecing it together and getting experts together to show that the patent is invalid and put a good case on for the jury about that. And if you have only a short time to do that, you can't do a very good job. So places where there was a rocket docket started to become very popular for patent plaintiffs, and particularly for what we call patent trolls or non-practicing entities. Don't actually make a product. Their whole business is just suing people over patent infringement. They may buy out a patent and then sue people for it. And so the Eastern District of Texas became a very popular place for a number of reasons. Uh, with something like 40% of all patent infringement lawsuits being filed in the Eastern District of Texas, even if nobody there, not the plaintiffs, not the defendants, had any connection with Texas. So let's talk uh, about that. Eastern District of Texas, what, what, is, what towns are we talking about? Marshall and Texarkana, principally. And so that would be like Marshall and Beaumont, I think? Um, I believe so. So, and so we're not talking like high tech centers. We're not talking um, 
you know, I've looked at some of the demographics of this region where uh, and then you know is far below in terms of the jury pools the, the, the number of college graduates is far below the national average and half of what it is would say would it be in Silicon Valley um, and, and in addition it's a very it's known as the cancer belt this is the area where a lot of the refineries were and um, and so it is somewhat of an economically depressed area and um, this must have been quite a boon to them yeah, Marshall, for example, used to is a town of 25,000 people, and it used to be a prosperous town due to oil and railroads, and that declined over the years, and now it's it's just kind of a rust belt area, um, and the people are not, not wealthy, that's for sure. And so when everybody started bringing lawsuits in that district, of course it brought teams of lawyers in, and lawyers rent hotel rooms, and they go to restaurants, and they rent cars, and oftentimes they rent additional office space as well. So this actually ended up being a big economic boon to Marshall, Texas, and gradually the people began to realize that. Uh, it, it perhaps started in Marshall, Texas with Texas Instruments back in 1990, at the same time the Federal Circuit said you can sue anywhere. Texas Instruments, which uh, was making about half of its money just from licensing patents, they said, well, uh, the federal courts here in Dallas are pretty clogged up and we want things faster, so let's, let's file some suits in Marshall, Texas. And um, so they were the hometown. They were the home team favorites for a while, and I guess the jury started to rule in their favor. And then once uh, all these cases started being brought from throughout the country, uh, and it created an economic boon for Marshall, Texas, uh, apparently the people just continued to think, well, this is good for us, so let's just keep ruling in the favor of uh, patent plaintiffs and give them the benefit of the doubt. And and, related to that, um, you you have companies now trying to curry favor in that region um john oliver and we by the way we as usual are, we have um show notes on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and john oliver on, on hbo's um um last week tonight did a, a segment on patent trolls and he reported how i believe it was samsung actually built an ice rink Outside the courthouse, in it was in Marshall or Beaumont, one of the two towns, and as a way to just build goodwill for this you know, potentially very important jury pool for a company that's about to have a whole bunch of patent trials against Apple. Yeah, and I think believe it was not long after they built that open air ice rink in Texas, right? Naturally, where else would you build an open air ice rink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the the jury in. Marshall gave a judgment of infringement against Samsung, but for only $15.6 million in a case brought by Rembrandt Technologies, one of the original patent trolls, which is far lower than a lot of patent trolls get when they are successful. So did the ice rink and other things that Samsung does for that town, did that influence the jury? Who knows? Yeah, Samsung, they'd probably say, well, we certainly hope it did. Right. I mean, the relative investment of a you know, a a fifty thousand dollar ice rink could save you millions. Exactly. <laughs> so there was and there was there was more to it, and um, and part of it though was while there was a rocket docket, 
my understanding was there was one motion, there was one thing the courts weren't quick to decide, and that was venue motions. Could you talk about that? Sure. Courts have a lot of uh, latitude to transfer a case to somewhere else if there's just not much connection with that court to the case of the plaintiffs, where the witnesses are, etc. So you can bring a motion to transfer venue for what they call forum nonconvenience or for other grounds, saying, please move this case to another district. And people were bringing those cases, those motions in Marshall, saying, you know, we have no connection here. The plaintiffs aren't here. The defendants aren't here. Uh, the witnesses aren't here. Would you please transfer this to somewhere else? And the courts in Marshall were notorious for saying, no, we, we think we like it here just fine. And in just recent times, within the last year or so, the Federal Circuit has begun telling the judges in Marshall, Texas, you got that wrong. That's an abuse of discretion not to transfer it. So uh, cases have begun being transferred out of Marshall, Texas, in a few cases, uh, certainly more so now that the Federal Circuit has ruled in favor of those transfer motions. Uh, but still, they, they, the judges in Marshall, Texas, didn't want to transfer those out, so it was still hard to get them out of Marshall, Texas. Now, your practice is, how much of your practice is in patent work? About uh, 70%. So, tell us a little bit about patent litigation in in terms of how does it compare cost-wise to other litigation? Uh, Patent litigation is tremendously expensive. You know, with patents, you have complicated facts about complicated technologies often, and the products themselves, and do they fit within the patents, do they infringe? And then you've also got the question of validity. You've got the question of, uh, is this patent, should it ever have been granted in the first place if the patent office had had the correct references in front of it and had thought about it correctly? So that often entails uh, both claim construction, you know, Markman hearings they call them, which is kind of a separate set of hearings in terms of what exactly does this patent mean? What does and doesn't it cover? And then you've got the... Would it be fair to say that's almost like a trial within a trial? Yeah, oftentimes. And sometimes even the parties will stipulate that depending upon how this Markman hearing comes out, there's either going to be infringement or not. So that's often where the whole infringement case comes down to. Yeah. Um, so you you need expert witnesses at that. You need expert witnesses at validity. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork you have to generate, and uh, patent cases generally cost between two and five million dollars per side to take all the way to trial. For that reason, it's tremendously expensive, and so that creates a great opening for patent trolls to sue somebody for infringement and say, "Yeah, we, we know we know we don't have a great case, but." It's going to cost you at least $2 million to take it to trial. Why don't you just pay us maybe $100,000, $200,000 and be done with it? And a lot of companies do. And and so that that's true anywhere. That's true whether it's in Los Angeles or Wilmington, Delaware, or Marshall, Texas. Exactly Those, true. But if you're in Marshall, Texas, you know that you may have you have the 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 disadvantage of the rocket docket, and you know you have an extremely friendly, plaintiff friendly jury pool. So, which makes the risk of, and also the fact that your whole team of lawyers, where where your selected lawyers, are probably going to have to pick up and move to Texas for the trial, and you're probably going to have to hire local counsel because being Texan, you know, they all kind of know each other, and that seems to sort of help. You ain't from here. 
<laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think, um, and my apologies to, this, to my listeners from Texas, but it, it, it just seems to have such a, um, give some great leverage if just just by filing it in, in, the, in Marshall. Exactly. You got even more leverage. You normally have a lot of leverage in a patent case, but it's particularly more so in the Eastern District of Texas there. So this, uh, this decision by the Supreme Court is going to create a, a large shift. Uh, they estimate 1,000 cases a year are no longer going to be filed in the Eastern District that otherwise would have been filed there. Uh, cases are going to be brought more often in Delaware, which already has had a lot of patent cases being brought, but that's where many corporations are incorporated. Um, and you probably will see uh, patent trolls not filing quite as many lawsuits. This will be they won't have as big a, a leverage over people. Uh, I had a case recently where a patent troll, uh, was incorporated in Connecticut, and it seemed like they had a court there that was favorable to them and had granted them uh, favorable rulings in past on other cases, and that was part of why the client didn't want to litigate in Connecticut, and um, they knew the lawsuit was going to be brought there. Now, after T.C. Heartland, though that plaintiff can't bring that case in Connecticut anymore, so uh, it's going to be less of a threat against that particular client of mine, and you know, a lot of other clients, I think, will be in the same position. But Delaware will be the new hot, hot docket. Yes, probably so. Of course, you know, you can still sue a patent uh, defendant, a corporation, any place that has a, uh, an office and conducts regular business there, which for a lot of corporations, you know, any retailers, for example. Is nationwide, yeah. Pretty much nationwide. So um, we're going to take a, a short break and partly so I can figure out how to do a Delaware accent. But when we come back, we'll be talking more about the recent Supreme Court opinions with Joe Volsky. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website act? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E-Digital.com. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts. We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Circle. Cranberry Radio, online anytime at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. 
And we're back, and uh, we put a call into the Joe Biden Vice Presidential Library, and we've been told there is no such thing as a Delaware accent. It's all you folk who talk funny. So, um, <laughs> so Joel, we're, we're talking about um, this 8-0 ruling and in, in the patent space. And so there will be a shift to places like Wilmington. And as you mentioned, the, the one other requirement is that it has to be a place where the company does business and actually the infringement has taken place. Or where the company is incorporated. So, yeah. So, if, if a lot of the big companies are incorporated in Delaware and in a few other places, um, but, the, but there, is an, there has to be a nexus between the actual infringement. Although, if we're talking about you know, a product, that that... You know, that also was likely to be national as well. Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, you can't sue a company just because they ship products into your district and then they infringe a patent, for example. If, if companies ship a product into Texas, just because they ship an infringing product into Texas doesn't mean you can sue them in Texas. So, um, but, so what, is, what do they have to do? in that district? Uh, they have to either be uh, incorporated in Texas or have an office in Texas and commit acts of infringement there, a regular and established place of business and commit acts of infringement. Now, I don't know how you'd have a regular place of business but not being established or an established place of business but not being regular, but that's what the statute says. It has to be a regular and established place of business and commit acts of infringement there. So you might even see companies folding up any offices that they had in Texas just so they don't get roped down into that district. Interesting. You know, in terms of a, a negative backlash just there. Now, I, I, have you seen anything, whether the, the Texas you know, political leaders, governor, senators are, are somewhat um, concerned about this or have made any comments about, um, now you all come back now? <laughs> I haven't read anything about that. I, I know at one point there was a push in Congress to change the statutes so that you could get the, the result that the Supreme Court gave us, and there was some pushback by, I believe, some of the legislators from Texas at that time uh, or other people, but uh, I haven't heard any response to this particular Supreme Court ruling. So, yeah, it was, it was easier for them when the push was legislative because they, they could do a veto. Um, you know, They could put a hold on it in the Senate. And you know, plus they have a lot of you know powerful members in the house. But now it's up their their backs against the wall, and um, for them to you know to get something that favors them over the rest of the country, and you know, they're going to go up against the California delegation that's going to say no, you know, sorry, yeah, <laughs> sorry, Tex, we're not going to do that. I think. Right, I think that's true. In order to come out with a congressional statute that overrides the Supreme Court ruling, I, I think that would require a tremendous amount of political effort uh, and support behind it, which just isn't going to exist in this case. And, and keep in mind that one of Texas senators is Ted Cruz, who one of his fellow Republicans said that if he was killed on the Senate floor and um, you tried his murderer before the Senate, you would not get a conviction. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there it might be a challenge in that respect. So um, 
one other thing I noticed that we're, we're getting a number of 8-0 rulings. And I was just trying to, I just thought that was odd to, to see so many 8-0 rulings when we, we've had so many close decisions in, in the past few years. And then it, it dawned on me that, you know, basically there's, there's a process by which the court takes cases and they, they vote. And if you get a you know a, a majority of the justices agree, to, is it a majority or just four to grant cert? Uh, it's a majority to grant cert. That okay, is. so if a majority of justices grant cert, um, then the case is briefed and heard and argued and the decision is made. But sometimes you know you can read through tea leaves that you, you have five judges willing to consider this issue that they may already have an idea where they want to go and. Uh, and so, you know, people often make it think it's significant when justices, you know, choose a case. Well, ever since the death of, you know, Justice Scalia, you know, we've had a 4-4 court. And that has only, and so this entire term has really been with cases that were, you know, that was, well, agreed to be heard by an evenly split court. And so if there was a contentious case, it probably may not have been heard this term. Whereas yeah. next year, this upcoming term, you know, next term, when now that you have Gorsuch on the, on, you know, filling that seat, you know, you now have the ability to have a 5-4 vote as opposed to a 4-4 vote. Um, and it's just, I, I, I probably should, you know, I, I may be overstating that because I'm, I'm sure if, so, um, you know, some Supreme Court scholars going to say Bennett actually, you know, one third of all Supreme Court decisions are eight zero or whatever. You know, so maybe I'm, I'm overstating it, but um, I just it it is an interesting uh, idea that maybe this is you know, one of the this term these type of results are actually is kind of the the artifact of uh, Escalia's vacancy. Yeah, it may well be that when the Supreme Court justices are sitting around a table deciding which cases to accept cert on, they get some cases that are going to be just so politically explosive that the justices look at each other and they say, we know this is going to come out to a 4-4 tie and uh, people saying some bad things about the other decisions. And just like uh, perhaps in a marriage after you've been together for a long time, there you are certain topics there. You know just not to bring up. <laughs> and so you just you just avoid those topics and don't talk about them. And that may be what the Supreme Court is doing. Uh, in, in the other two jurisdiction cases about corporations, one was Bristol-Myers Squibb versus Superior Court decided two days ago, and the other was BNSF Railway versus Tyrell that also had to do with where you can sue a corporation. Uh, those were 8-1 decisions. So with Sonia Sotomayor thinking, well, you really ought to be able to sue a corporation pretty much anywhere. She was the lone dissent uh, with everybody else being unanimous. So... Even in those cases, which had a tinge of perhaps political overtones, is where you should be able to sue a corporation. Is it fair to sue them anywhere, those big, bad, evil corporations? Uh, even then, they came almost unanimous. So, I don't know. Maybe the justices are just becoming a little more uh, agreeable. I don't know. Well, I mean, Scalia and Ginsburg, you know, two diametrically opposed um, legal scholars, were actually great friends and you know, opera buddies. And so who, you know, so who knows? Yeah. Who knows what, what the case is, but, uh, it is, it, it is an interesting concept. So, um, or it could just be that, 
the justices were observing what what we all were observing, what John Oliver was commenting about that you know this kind of seems whacked. Yeah, well, in the uh, the T.C. Heartland venue case that we've just been discussing, I think it's kind of interesting that the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in 1990 uh, one way, and that's the way it's been for 27 years. And now, all these years later, the Supreme Court's at eight to nothing, said you guys all got it wrong there on the Federal Circuit. So it just sort of goes to show you that when Congress writes laws that are kind of ambiguous and you're not quite sure exactly what they mean and how does that play with this other one, does that override the other statute, is that even lawyers can uh, have you know, significant disagreements and they can think they've got it right and other lawyers can come along and say, no, you got that entirely wrong. Even lawyers at the, uh, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals that you'd think should be able to get the law right, uh, they say one way and the Supreme Court says with a unanimous vote, no, you all got it wrong. It does seem odd that you know it took twenty seven years, and yeah. you know, it's a strange thing. But um, so, kind of the takeaways on this are: you're going to see less cases in Beaumont, but you know, it doesn't mean the patent trolls aren't going to have leverage. They're still going to have the leverage of you know I am I have my finger on a trigger that could lead to you paying you know over a million dollars to your lawyers. You know, do you want to do you want to roll the dice, regardless of whether it's in Marshall, Texas, or Wilmington, or San Jose, or Los Angeles? Yeah, they're still going to have leverage, uh, although they're not going to be able to pick which of fifty states they think is going to be most favorable to them. Which you know could be a relatively significant reduction in their leverage. There have been other occurrences in the law happening, including the, um, the Section 101 subject matter jurisdiction case uh, in Alice uh, v. Uh, Alice Corporation that reduced the sorts of things you can patent and bring lawsuits. So there have been some little changes over the law over the last few years that have given patent trolls less and less leverage, and this will be a significant notch in that, giving patent trolls less, le- less leverage. They'll still be a problem. They'll still be a drag on the economy. You'll still have entrepreneurs that are building a company say, ah, oh, I, I just got this threatening letter from a patent troll. What do I do? Uh, but but it'll be better, I think. In, in case in point, in, the, in you know, art imitating life in the, the TV show Silicon Valley on HBO, yeah, that happened this season, where it's the Pied Piper was was the target of a patent troll, and um, so ripped from the headlines. Ripped from the headlines of of entertainment. Although we we actually did a show with um, Dan Lyons, who was one of the writers for the show, but I'm not sure if he was a writer of the season. But it you know, it's just it's a very real threat um, in if you're in the tech space. I think. Do you yeah, do you get a sense that from your clients is you know the things they dread uh, is is that the that the top of the list? Yeah, it's certainly one of the things they fear. It's certainly one of the things they have to realize may happen. Uh, often people don't hope it'll never happen to them, and so they don't dread it all that much. Which why waste your time dreading something anyway? But obviously, when they do get such a letter or such a lawsuit, then you know then it's fear and loathing. Yes. And um, so there was another, we're going to jump into the next case, the other ADO case involved trademarks. And you, that's part of your practice as well. You do a fair amount of trademark work as well. Absolutely. And um, and so it was, it's an interesting case because 
the the case the court heard wasn't the case that was getting the press on this topic. And um, why don't you explain that? Oh, sure. The case that first started getting press on this topic was the Washington Redskins. There was a member of an Indian tribe that brought a lawsuit to cancel the Washington Redskins trademark on the grounds that it disparages American Indians. There's a statute, 15 U.S. Code Section 1052, if you really care about that, that says the PTO may not register marks that, quote, may disparage any persons living or dead or bring them into contempt or disrepute. End of quotes. So the trademark office had canceled the Washington Redskins trademark on the grounds that that trademark, the Redskins, disparaged American Indians. So that's been bubbling up through the courts, but that's not the court, that's not the case that reached the court. The case that reached the court was actually more sympathetic to the would-be registrant. That was um, Simon Tam was the lead plaintiff on the case. Uh, he wanted to register the mark, the slants for a musical group that consisted of Asian Americans. And he said, I want to call it the slants, which has, of course, is a disparaging term, slant eyes or slants for Asian Americans. That he said, I want to register that term because I want to reclaim it and take away the stigma. Perhaps maybe as uh, gays did with the term queer, that was originally very disparaging And the the N-word in the the African-American community. They kind of embraced that. Um, and so Simon Tam wanted to register the slants, and the PTO originally said, no, we won't register that. That's disparaging, and we can't register a disparaging mark. So he was kind of uh, a favorable plaintiff in the sense that he says, look, that, that applies to us, and we want to reclaim it. You know, it's, if anyone's going to be offended, it would be us, and, and we're not going to be offended by it. We actually want to make a positive political statement by it. Um, so, uh, actually, and this is a case where the district court ruled in Mr. Tam's favor, and the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Mr. Tam's favor, and then the Supreme Court ruled eight to nothing in Again. Mr. Tam's favor. So all the courts yeah. agreed at the time that that, uh, that prohibition against registering marks that are disparaging violates the First Amendment, which guarantees free speech. This the uh, Solicitor General had originally tried to defend that on the grounds that, well, no, um, you know, this is government speech. It's not just purely somebody else's speech. It's, and by all different... It's government speech because we're, we're attaching this federal, a federally approved registered symbol on to that name. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, we're, we're giving you benefits, etc. And Justice Alito said, look, if, if a trademark is a government speech just because it gets registered, then the federal government is babbling prodigiously and incoherently because of all the different marks for all the different things they register. Plus copyrights uh, and all, yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. He, he said, look, if if merely registration by the government turns it into the government speech, then registering your copyright with the government turns it into federal government speech, and therefore we can govern what you can and cannot copyright. So that would be a really dangerous precedent, he said. Um, so again, now, one aspect perhaps of this that might be interesting is that that same statute which prohibits disparaging trademarks also prohibits immoral or scandalous trademarks. Now, they, they didn't address that, but that, that could be the pushback, I guess, what, from the porn industry? Well, yeah. Well, one way, 
ways or types of marks that the PTO rejects are marks that have uh, highly sexual connotations or contain obscenity or even uh, references to obscenity. Like there was a musical group called LMFAO, which of course stands for Freaking Ass Off, yes. Which the PTO refused on the grounds of immoral or scandalous. Now, the reasoning that we shouldn't be suppressing ideas in the marketplace of ideas applies a little bit more with the disparagement clause than it does with the immoral or scandalous clause. The FCC, for example, says, well, if you use you know, airwaves, uh, you, there are certain things you can't say, the seven dirty words that you can't say on television, for example. So I don't know whether or not the immoral or scandalous clause is going to fall down, but maybe. Uh, somebody else tried to register Quran for wine, and the PTO rejected that as being immoral or scandalous. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I tend to think that those will still stay. So it's disparaging marks, which will uh, be allowed from now on. So the Redskins will stay registered. Uh, obviously, the lower courts, which had stayed their appeal, uh, are going to now rule in their favor. In the Washington Redskins will remain a registered trademark. And so the Redskins actually get a win, but they still haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1990. Right. There's you know, still a lot of pushback from it. And I, I was kind of surprised once the PTO and the courts invalidated their trademark, I thought the time would come for the owner to say, okay, well, the times have changed. We're going to change our name. But he stuck those guns and said, no, no, we're staying the Redskins, even if it's not federally registered. I, I actually, yeah, I mean, I used to live in Washington. I I got I came to Washington the same year as Joe Gibbs, and actually same year as Gibbs and Ronald Reagan, and so I saw this this kind of resurrection of the franchise under Gibbs, and you know I was there for the three Super Bowls. I was a big fan, and it was very exciting. And and that city just loves that team, and this owner has actually taken dampened the public sentiment for the for the team and the way he's kind of mismanaged the franchise. But here's a city that just loves his team. I mean, you know, everyone has Redskin gear and, you know, on Sundays, you know, if you want to go shopping during a Redskin game, you're going to be shopping in an empty mall or an empty supermarket. It's just amazing the, the way the city's devoted. And, and so here's an opportunity to sell all this new merchandise with all the, you know, with the new name or whatever it is, earn goodwill, you know, from an ethnic, ethnically diverse city. And he just clamps down, and I, I just don't understand it. Now, you look at, you know, for example, in NHL, as they brought in the new teams, the San Jose Sharks and the, the, you know, the Ducks, and right away they became huge. Um, while they, they took them a while to be successful on the ice, they were very successful in merchandising because it was something new. And um, you know, Dan Snyder, I don't know what he's thinking, and um, you know, and in addition, you know, I think that the name is somewhat offensive. And you know, given that the the owner who changed, you know, who at one point said refused to hire any black athletes, saying I'll hire a black athlete when the NAACP hires a white person, um, you know, it, the the history that goes with the name isn't quite uh, appealing as well. So it'd be it would have been a good thing. I think it would been a smart business move. But um, another smart business move would be for me to take a break right now. But when we come back, we'll be talking more about the latest in the Supreme Court and IP rulings with Joe Volsky. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Money doesn't grow on trees. So you'll probably have a better chance of growing your business with cranberries. What? Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking with Jill Volsky about the latest Supreme Court rulings in intellectual property. Um, before we do, a couple of news updates and shout-outs. Um, we just two weeks ago, as I mentioned, uh, we did have the Uber story, and as you know, word is today that the its Uber CEO um, Travis Kalanick has resigned. Um, today's also a significant day in American history. Uh, on this day in 1964, um, three American heroes, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, were um, were detained in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and. Uh, had there and um, would then let go. Um, these civil rights workers were helping to register voters in uh, Mississippi and as part of Freedom Summer, and they then were followed by the police and the KKK, and they were killed, and their bodies um, buried in a dam. And it took a massive manhunt, and 44 after 44 days, they were finally found, uh, and... Um, a couple of years later, the, the state of Mississippi refused to um, prosecute anyone on murder charges. The federal government in 67 was able to convict some of the people on violating civil rights. And um, 41 years after, in 2005, on this very date, um, the mastermind of the, the whole plan to murder the three was actually convicted in Mississippi. So... And in 2014, President Obama gave them the Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously. So just a day to remember um, their contribution to the fight for civil rights, um, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. And um, that whole event is uh, was depicted in the, the movie Mississippi Burning, which was somewhat of a fictionalized account. And um, two other announcements. Today is National Selfie Day. And not that we need to encourage it, it seems, because it happens um, quite regularly without it. 
but um, also just coming in on the wire, George Clooney has just sold his um, tequila business. I didn't even know he had a tequila business, but he's just sold his tequila business for $1 billion. So, Joel, obviously we are in the wrong business. <laughs> so better to be in the business of being a great-looking movie star uh, that sells tequila. Exactly. I guess that's our hurdle. But um, <laughs> there's a high market entry. The market entry is pretty hard there. But um, congratulations to George. Not that I know you, but um, I just wouldn't mind having a drink with you if that's the case. But um, so, Joe, the um, the trademark rulings, you, you think so the Redskins probably will be clear and um, there's definitely going to be possibly some other rulings on what this means as to the other areas in trademarks that might um, that might possibly deal with that clause, such as, you know, pornography or um, some other offensive things. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm not sure how many people ever get rejected on disparagement. There was a case uh, a few years ago, a group under registered Dykes on Bikes, and the PTO rejected it as disparaging. It was a group of lesbian motorcycle riders, and they actually brought evidence before the PTO saying, no, we, we as lesbians don't consider this term dykes to be disparaging. So the PTO said, oh, okay, we'll let you register it. Uh, but I don't, uh, you know, rejections for disparagement are not very common. Who knows now? Maybe we'll see uh, a resurgence in people trying to register things that might be offensive to people. I. Uh, you know, particularly if they're trying to be in your face, like Quran for wine or something right. like that. I don't think would be a good development. I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's true in this environment. Um, you just, you, you, I don't even want to entertain the thought of where, where people might go with that. But yeah, you're right. That could be where they go. And um, so one never knows. Um, no, I do want to ask you about another development. And so Joel, Joel is a, a, a longtime friend, and he's also a Los Angeles Lakers season ticket holder. And uh, well, I guess, how what has it been like watching you know the Lakers go from champions to and watching the rise of uh, of the Warriors while the Lakers have kind of declined? Well, that has been heartbreaking, no doubt about it. When Jerry Buss died, things just uh, went to hell in a handbasket very quickly. But the uh, the good part about that is that it's kind of exciting to watch them beginning to rise again. They've got Luke Walton, and uh, you know we're all kind of hopeful that next season will be even better than last season was, which was somewhat better than the prior season. It definitely was, and there definitely was a sense of excitement. But so, Mr. Laker, and you know, actually, Mr. Basketball, you know, the NBA logo is based on his silhouette, Jerry West, who helped build the Showtime dynasty who convinced Shaq to come to L.A. and engineered the move that brought Kobe to the Lakers from Charlotte, uh, when were, who drafted him. Um, Jerry West is now signed with the Crosstown Rival Los Angeles Clippers. What is that? What, how is that reverberating in, in Lakerdom? Oh, well, you know, we, uh, the Lakers signed Magic Johnson as a consultant, and now the Clippers will have Jerry West as a consultant. And who knows? It might be really fun if the both of them build up the teams uh, and we have a Los Angeles rivalry. It's, that would be good. I mean, it would be so much fun to have a conference finals. I mean, we can't we can't both play in the title, but to have a Laker Clipper conference final, you know, uh, so we we can't call it a subway series because so few people take the subway here. But um, 
it, it really would be interesting. And uh, but Jerry West, just his you know his background, his pedigree. Not only did he, did he build up the Lakers, as I mentioned, but then he went to Memphis, which had never even had won more than thirty games. And within two years, they were winning fifty games and were a perennial playoff contender. And then he was uh, had a big role in um, Golden State. Um, particularly when it came to um, drafting and not trading Clay Thompson, and he, you know, he's the one who made the phone call to Durant and convinced Durant to come. So um, the the general view is that West is going to be instrumental in the whole battle over LeBron, who apparently wants to move to Los Angeles. And uh, do you think LeBron could end up a Laker, or do you? Do you Oh gosh, I'm not going to speculate on whether LeBron could end up a Lakers. I think they would, or, or or a Clipper. I think that would be fun to see, no doubt about it. He's a, obviously a great athlete. He's just incredible to watch every time he plays. But Jerry West has had great success in, in pretty much every place he's gone, and we hope that he will have success in building up the Clippers. They they underperformed. I think they uh, didn't meet the expectations. We thought they would be greater than they were. Um, so hopefully he can bring some of his magic. Uh, to the Clippers. There, there's some amazing stats about the Clippers. They're the first team to win 60 more games, like five or six years in a row, to not go to the conference final. They're the first team to um, be ahead in a series and lose in the playoffs five years in a row. I mean, it, <laughs> it is just astounding, you know, the epic collapse. And, um, and there's actually a book out now called The Curse, and um, it covers the the story, or I should say, the, the tragic history of the the, the Clippers since their move um, from Buffalo to San Diego and ultimately L.A. And um, for many years, they were among the worst teams. In, in some of the worst teams in NBA history have been uh, the, the the Clippers. So, um, and that's written by Mick Minus. And um, he is actually going to be a, a guest on our show, uh, I think, next week. So um, we'll be talking a little bit about that, that whole Clipper, Clipper dumb and um, the, 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 the curse that from, I don't remember, Bill Walton. Um, they did a major trade for Bill Walton, and he only played about 30 games in three years because of his constant feet injuries. So um definitely an interesting thing now joe what, what do you have anything uh, anything you want to let us know about what you're up to or um not other than usual you know i i obtain patents and trademarks for clients give them opinions clearances make sure that uh, the product they want to sell or the uh, trademark they want to use is not being used by somebody else or too close you know you, one of the last things you want to do is to launch a product a lot of money advertising on it, and then get a letter from a lawyer saying, uh, that's too close to my client's trademark. Uh, you got to stop. So that's one of the things I do is help prevent that from happening and then register whatever your company's innovations are to help make sure that you could do that to somebody else who comes too close to copying what you're doing. And you're admitted in the patent bar, correct? Absolutely. And what does that mean to be admitted in the patent bar? Well, it means I can represent somebody in obtaining patents for them before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. You have to have a technical background and pass a special test. It has to do with uh, how the patent office works in terms of obtaining patents. So, yeah, I was an electrical engineer for nine years, so that's my technical background that qualified me to sit for that. And then uh, took the patent bar. I was with a patent law firm for a number of years before establishing my own office. 
And um, excuse me, I'm trying not to sneeze. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Um, so, and yes, in your patent office, you've been in Malibu, and uh, are, your, your clients are worldwide, though, right? Uh, yeah, most across the United States, most of them are based here in Los Angeles, but sometimes I certainly represent, I get calls from the attorneys that I work with in other countries uh, saying we've got a client here in the UK that wants a registration or a patent in your country, would you please help us with that? I have uh, relationships with attorneys all over the world that we obtain protection for our clients, Marks, in Australia and Europe and European patents and things like that, and, and those attorneys also, uh, you know, introduced me to their clients to get their work done. Yeah. Well, and Joel and I actually worked at the same law firm, uh, one of, which at one point was one of the top five law firms for corporate America. Um, although we worked at separate times, and, and the firm you know, collapsed during the Great Recession of. 2008, you know, how it was Howry and Simon, and then became, was known as Howry. But uh, yeah, there's a survey, National Law Journal, there's a survey of, you know, of the legal departments of the various um, Fortune 500, and they ask them, okay, what, what are the, like, the top three or top five law firms you used? And Howry, which had a staple of clients like Exxon, Caterpillar, um, what were some of the clients you worked with? Uh, Callaway Golf. Um, electronics for imaging. Um, it's been a long time now. Yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, I just remember the clients were huge. I mean, I worked on Exxon. I worked on Caterpillar, and um, but it just it just all fell apart. And uh, late in industries, you know, I worked on a case. We had the largest um, antitrust verdict in uh, I think in history at the time, um, seven hundred million or something, and uh, against. Um, Honeywell and uh, epic trial, but um, yeah, just times changed, and uh, you've seen uh, it's happening. A number of giant law firms. Um, I remember it was a Heller and Ehrman. They they collapsed, and they're the ones that got the financing for the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, really historic firms, and um, so the legal market is changing, and we're adapting, and that's why people like you are thriving with your nice boutique and patent law out in IP law in Malibu and um, so but I want to thank you for joining us and uh, as usual it's been a pleasure and I uh, hope we provide some clarity on what's happening in Supreme Court uh, I imagine we'll, when we talk if we talk next time we won't be talking about as many 8-0 rulings now that we have a full Supreme Court but uh, it remains to be seen whether the court will continue to take up patent and, uh, and trademark cases in the next term. But I guess we'll have to look at the docket. But I want to thank you again, Joel. It's always a pleasure. If people want to go to you, where's their web- what's your website? The website is just my last name, Volsky. That's V as in Victor, O-E-L-Z-K-E dot com. You can find my phone number there and just give me a call. And we have uh, Joel's bio and other information as well as a link to his website on our show notes. So be sure to check that out. And um, that's all we have this week. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Um, This is Ben and Kelly. Be sure to check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet law firm representing e-commerce companies as well as victims of cyber harassment. And um, so be sure to follow uh, this this show on CyberLaw Radio on Twitter and um, our blog, as usual, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. So this is Ben and Kelly. We will see you next week when we're talking about the Clipper Curse. 
And um, until then, have a great week. Thank you. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.